We are indeed in John, chapter 10, and uh, if you want to find it now, although no need to just yet, we're on page 1077. Uh, Morning, my name is Dan, as Lou said, and I want to begin by playing a a quiz with you. Uh, The quiz is, uh, what's this person saying? I'm afraid there's no fancy videos, I I think probably would have been against copyright laws, so you just have to put up with my explanations. Um, What's this person saying? I want you to picture... Uh, Lord Sugar, in the opening titles to The Apprentice, if you've watched that, doesn't matter if you have or haven't really, I'll describe it to you. Lord Sugar, uh, the kind of the boss of The Apprentice, opening titles, and in the opening titles you see him sat in his private jet, uh, kind of little clip of him sitting there in his big leather armchair in his private jet uh, with his kind of, I think, uh, sugar kind of code sign or whatever it's called, Andrew could tell me, but he's not here, I don't think. Uh, anyway, uh, you see him with his kind of private jet, branded with his name on it. You see him in his uh, swanky Rolls Royce uh, with his kind of AMS1 number plate, personalised number plate. Uh, anyone kind of tell me, what is he saying? This is the quiz, what's he saying? In those kind of little clips. Have a guess. I am rich, yes, thank you. I am rich, yeah. Anything else, maybe? Powerful. I'm rich. I'm powerful. I'm six. Put in. Important. I'm rich. I'm powerful. I'm important. I know what I'm talking about. This is great. <laughs> He's saying a lot, isn't he? He's talk very talkative, Lord Sugar. Uh, I'm rich. I'm powerful. I'm important. I know what I'm talking about. I'm successful. I've made it. Listen to me. That's what that's what he's saying, basically, with his little clip in his private jets. Uh, how about another one? How about another one? Let's think of uh, a scene you might see in the news sometimes. Uh, Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea, the supreme leader of North Korea, kind of... Pardon? Great, thank you. Addicted to Emmental, apparently. I never knew that. Um, Right, anyway, let's imagine you picture uh, Kim Jong-un, the supreme leader of North Korea. You see him on a news clip, and uh, he's got armies and armies kind of marching past him, great big missile carriers driving along, uh, and just kind of this, whoa, display of of force. What's he saying when you see those those images? (laughs) Thank you. Don't mess with me. I think probably it's more likely that one. Don't mess with me. Yeah, don't mess with me. I think he's saying that to his own people and, and to us as well, probably. Okay, uh, uh, one more. One more. Uh, the boy in the class who invites everyone to his party, everyone in the class to his party, apart from one other child. What's he saying? <laughs> no one wants to say the sad one. I don't like you. You're not my friend. I don't like you. That's a sad one, isn't it? Sorry about that. Um, okay. But this, the point is that we can say so much uh, in, in many ways without actually saying the thing, can't we? And uh, we kind of have our sayings about kind of actions speaking louder than words or, or say it with flowers. We all know this idea that you can say something very specific without actually using the particular words. Uh, we talk about body language uh, and so on. But as Lou's kind of hinted at, uh, this morning, the question that's kind of running through this passage is, what was Jesus saying? This is the question I want you to keep in your mind as we go through continuing in John 10. What was Jesus saying? And uh, we start off just with this um, idea of questioning Jesus, first of all. Just verses 22, 24, questioning Jesus. The whole passage is about the identity of Jesus. 
It's the big question throughout this book. Who is this man? Where's he from? How can he do the miraculous things he does? Where does he get his authority from? An increasing number of people were asking it. Who is this man? Growing crowds who saw the things Jesus was doing and heard the words he spoke. Individuals who who had personal encounters with him. Religious leaders who heard reports about him and some of whom witnessed for themselves the things he said and did. One possible answer to the question, who is this man, that would have been in many people's minds, is that Jesus could be the Messiah. The term Messiah comes from a Hebrew or Aramaic word meaning anointed one. The Greek equivalent of Messiah is Christ. Christ and Messiah are the same title, just in different languages. Both words refer to God's anointed one. In the Old Testament part of the Bible, the king of Israel, the high priest, and some of the prophets were described as the Lord's anointed. Uh, And not only were they described like that, but they were actually uh, physically anointed. Uh, Aaron had anointing oil poured on his head when he was set apart as priest. David had oil poured on him when he was set apart to be the king. Elisha also was to be anointed when he was set apart as a prophet. Yet there was an expectation that the ultimate anointed one, the ultimate Messiah or Christ, was yet to come. The Messiah was the one who God had promised would come to his people. He would be a king, a king descended from David, the great king of Israel. But Messiah would be greater As well as being the king, the Messiah would be the great high priest. And he would be the promised prophet. He would bring all that God had promised into fulfillment in one person. One anointed one. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ. The anointed one sent from God. And as we shall see... Even those who'd begun to conclude this didn't perhaps understand correctly how the Messiah would come. Certainly many had very inadequate expectations of what Messiah would be and do. Uh, But we'll come back to that later on. For now, let's take a look at verses 22 to 24 of John 10. Uh, It's on page 1077, and it's at the top of the left-hand column. John 10, verses 22 to 24. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered round him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Now, as you might have picked up from that video, Uh, we saw earlier. We shouldn't mistake the Jews here as as speaking like an admirer uh, to the one whose love uh, they're desperate to to have in return. Don't keep me in suspense. Do you love me? Tell me. They're not speaking like that. It wasn't so much that they wanted to hear Jesus declare himself to be the Messiah so they could follow and worship him. That much is evident from what happens next. It seems instead that they wanted to hear 
some kind of indisputable grounds, or certainly something they would consider as indisputable grounds to get rid of Jesus. What do you want to hear Jesus say to you? What do you want to hear Jesus say to you? Imagine there must be some people here this morning who ask a certain question, sometimes, sometimes ask a certain question. Maybe you're even asking it today. The question goes something like this. If Jesus is real, if God is real, why doesn't he turn up and show himself to me? Why doesn't he show up here and now and prove himself to me? Maybe that question's not too far removed from from this encounter in John chapter 10. What do you want to hear Jesus say to you? Could it be that possibly, just possibly, you need to rethink what he has already said? Could it be that if we listen more carefully, we might find that he's already given us our answer? It's okay to ask questions. Questions are to be encouraged. It's just not true that you have to leave your brain at the door if you want to follow Jesus. He's concerned with truth, as we saw a few weeks ago. Ask questions, but do listen hard for the answers. Questioning Jesus is good, but then we need to be hearing Jesus. Hearing Jesus. So let's have a look again from verse 24, but we'll read a bit more this time. The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. I did tell you, Jesus said. I did tell you. Do you remember the things we looked at at the beginning? Jesus did tell very clearly. He might not have used those exact words with them, but he did tell them. In his words that he did say, in the claims he did make, claims that could only appear on the lips of the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. In his good works, 
that the, the, the word he uses kind of speaks about good works, noble works, or, or beautiful works. Think about it. That healing of the, the guy who'd been a paralytic for, what, 38 years. Isn't it a good work to heal him, restore him to health? The man we saw the other week, born blind. Isn't it a good work to give him sight? What do these works point to? What are they saying? Jesus is saying, I did tell you, my works are telling you that I'm the Messiah, the anointed one. John calls these things signs for a reason. You notice as you read through John's gospel, he doesn't talk about the miracles of Jesus. He talks about the signs of Jesus. He calls them signs for a reason because they're signs that point to who Jesus is. And even this shepherd image of, of the previous verses in, in John 10 were a clear fulfillment of the one who was to come. I did tell you. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, God's promised anointed one. And he did disclose that in person to a few people. He disclosed it to the woman in chapter 4, the woman from Samaria. She said to him, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. That's back in chapter 4 of John. He admitted it to his closest disciples in private. Matthew 16, uh, in verses 15 and 16, records Jesus asking his disciples, Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus accepted that. He revealed it in private to people, but he wouldn't be drawn into using it publicly. Why is that? Well, the title Messiah had become charged politically and military, military not, not the kind of Messiah that God actually promised. That they focused just on this king aspect of the Messiah. They missed out vital things like being a suffering servant. We know that there's these kingly expectations of the Messiah. Because uh, back in chapter 6, uh, Jesus had to withdraw from a place. Because he knew people were going to come and try and make him king by force. Moses led the people out of Israel. Uh, out of, sorry, Moses led the people out of Israel out of slavery to Egypt. Surely the Messiah, when he comes, uh, will lead the people out of the grip and, of Rome. And smash the Romans and liberate them from its occupation. That's the kind of expectation of the day. And so Jesus wouldn't say publicly, I'm the Messiah. Lest people misunderstood. Jesus, as a Messiah, came to fight on a different front. He came as a suffering servant. He would win his victory, not in a great battle with armies of people and defeating the Romans. He would win his great victory, laying down his life, as we saw in last week's chapter, their verses. He would win his victory on a cross, in a grave, in his resurrection. He was a very different kind of Messiah to what some were expecting. But he did make it very clear to those he was speaking with who he was. And if he hadn't already, in all the things he'd said before, and in this few verses that he's saying now, and in all his works, if he hadn't already made it very clear then perhaps he makes it very, very clear in verse 30 of chapter 10. 
kind of the climax of the chapter, really, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. You don't say that kind of thing. You don't say that kind of thing as they responded and demonstrated that to say that kind of thing, if you're just a man and you're kind of claiming to be God and you're worthy of being stoned to death. But we've already seen in John's gospel, haven't we, in chapter 1, and verse 1, the very first sentence of John's gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Already, right from the beginning, John is saying, Jesus is God. He's the son of God. He's the son from the father. God is a father and a son. And as we know from elsewhere, spirit too. John 1 verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the father, has made him known. The Jews had asked for this kind of plain statement that would clarify whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. And he gave that to them, didn't he? He gave them more than that. As he said, he's the son of God. And that term did function similarly to Christ the Messiah back then. Uh, Son of God was often used uh, as 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 an equivalent kind of title uh, with the Messiah. Uh, You might have picked that up if you look at chapter 1 again of John, uh, when Jesus appears to Nathanael and he says, Rabbi, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. Uh, Or in in next week's chapter, uh, Jesus will uh, be be, be told, um, uh, believe that he's the Messiah, the son of God. So this kind of title, he is saying that. He is saying it plainly and clearly. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. Because he's the son of God. He's one with the father. One in purpose. That's clear enough, isn't it? From their commitment not to allow any of Jesus' sheep to be snatched. But more than that, they're one in nature. He's the son sent from the father. The son who's always existed for eternity with the father. The son who's always loved the father from before the creation. The son who's always been the object of the father's love from before the creation. The son who's always been the delight of the father. The son who's always been one person, three persons, sorry. The son who's already always been one with the father and the spirit for all eternity. Have you heard Jesus say this to you? As I was preparing this, someone turned up at the church building this week who happened to have a story which is remarkably relevant to this discussion. This person explained to me and someone else how they'd heard things about Jesus for much of their life. They came from a religious family. It wasn't a Christian family, interestingly. The religion wasn't Christianity. But they came from a religious family, and this person had heard things about Jesus. They'd even read bits of the Bible. They even said that in the past they prayed to Jesus and he'd healed them from their illness. Yet in all of this testimony of what they'd read and their prayers and the answers they said they'd had, in all this testimony they perhaps hadn't yet heard Jesus telling them who he was 
and calling them to believe and follow him. It was great to, to meet this person. We had a good conversation and time praying for them. But, but I'm sharing their story or a bit of their story to illustrate that maybe there are others here today who might be a bit like them. Maybe you've dabbled with Jesus. Maybe you've read what he says in the Bible. Maybe you've heard about it here on a Sunday or at Open Door on a Thursday or at Alpha. Maybe you can even testify to praying to him or in his name and he healed you. But have you actually heard what he's been saying to you in all those things? What was he saying plainly in his words and works? What was he saying in his words and works? Have you stopped to listen and think through that they're all part of his saying to you, I'm here, I'm who I say I am, God the Son, sent by God the Father, the Christ, Messiah, come to rescue you, trust in me, believe me, walk with me, and receive eternal life. Which brings us to our final point. The right response to hearing Jesus is believing Jesus. Jesus repeatedly diagnoses the problem of these Jewish opponents is that they do not believe. Because this is believe is such an important word here, and in the whole of John's book, so much hangs on whether we believe or not. I'd like us to take a few minutes clarifying exactly what Jesus meant by believing and not believing. But firstly, let's get out of the way some of the things that Jesus did not mean. Jesus was not referring to a Richard Dawkins style, uh, faith is uh, believing in things, believing to be true, things which you know are, are not true. That's not what Jesus is talking about. The believing that Jesus was looking for was not believing at the expense of truth. Nor was it brainwashing, just accepting a a load of stuff to be true uh, because someone told you forcefully or convincingly enough that it was. There's another way we use the word believe, which uh, Jesus didn't mean either. Some of us will remember the famous catchphrase of Victor Meldrew uh, in uh, the old TV comedy One Foot in the Grave. Victor Meldrew was this kind of character, this grumpy old man. I'm sure none of us know any of them. Um, but he was this characterized as grumpy old man, and he was often heard saying, I don't believe it, um, or something of that sort. Um, I hope you like the impression there. This kind of word believe, though, when he's saying, I do not believe it, when he's saying that, uh, he's just, just limiting believed to whether something is true or not. That's all he means by it. When Victor Meldrew said, I don't believe it, he was declaring that he finds it difficult to accept uh, that something was the case. The response of believe that Jesus is looking for is not believing to be true something that isn't. Nor is it merely believing to be true something that is. To believe the way Jesus is using it is something more active and ongoing than that. The third thing that Jesus did not mean is some sort of abstract belief, as if we can just believe. The believing that Jesus calls for is believing in him. It isn't just believing, nor is it believing in Jesus as I like to think of him. 
uh, or whatever uh, way I construct who he is. It's believing in the real Jesus in the way he has made himself known. And I want to emphasize this because even this week I've heard someone say they believe and yet the focus of, of their belief wasn't quite clear. It's believing in him as he's revealed himself. Verse 25, Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Believing in Jesus does require that we believe to be true a certain amount of information. We believe that he exists. We believe he is who he said he is. We believe that he's one with the Father, the anointed one, the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah. We believe what he said is true. We believe he did what the Bible says he did. We believe he died on the cross to take away his people's sin. We believe he gave himself for me. He died for me in my place. This kind of belief becomes more than just believing these things to be true, though it's never less than that. But in addition to believing these things to be true, we believe them to be true for us personally. And as we do that, we're relying on them to be true for us personally. It's not just about facts, but trust. Uh, Maybe uh, if you ever have the need to go and see a doctor, there's certain facts you might believe about their ability to diagnose correctly your condition and and prescribe the right treatment. But you you don't just kind of believe these things to be true. You, You act on it, don't you? You go and put your hope in them. You put your trust in them to diagnose and treat you. We don't just believe these facts about Jesus academically. We put our trust in him. We hope in him. And this kind of believing in Jesus, trusting in him, depending on him, leads to following him. Like sheep, hearing the familiar voice of their shepherd, we listen to the voice of Jesus and we follow him. And this isn't a a happened once in the past kind of event. If we say we kind of believed once and, well, don't know where I am now. This isn't that kind of event We come to believe, but we must also continue to believe. Do you recognize this description of believing in Jesus? Does that resonate with you? Or might it be that you're yet to fully give your trust to him, yet to receive him? You could take that step today. Right now in your heart, you could embrace this kind of faith that says, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you're who you said you are. I believe you came for me, that you laid down your life for me. And I want to trust you and follow you. Whilst the Jews who opposed Jesus did not believe him, many did. 
And John concludes this chapter with verses 40 to 42. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. This is a a significant place. The place where John the Baptist had prepared the way for the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Well, that ministry is now drawing to a close. Very soon, Jesus will be completing his journey to the cross. And so here, back in that place, where John the Baptist prepared the way for the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, here he returns at its end. And many believed in him. Many there heard the witness of John the Baptist and the words and works of Jesus, and so believed in Jesus. As we've seen already in previous weeks, John wrote this book so that people would believe in Jesus. Towards the end of the book, in chapter 20, one of Jesus' followers truly believes in the risen Jesus and declares in worship, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That refers, of course, to all of us here today. Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet have believed. I say the not seen refers to all of us here today. Hopefully the believed bit will too. John goes on, though, to write in verse 30 to 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And for those who do believe, they enjoy that promise of life, eternal life. As we saw in verse 28, life of the age to come, life of the resurrection. We begin to experience the taste of it now, but it's this kind of sharing of the life of the Son himself, experienced in connection with him. And this life is secure and certain. If you're truly believing in Jesus, then you can have complete assurance and confidence that Jesus will lead you into this eternal life. He gives his word, they shall never perish. Then he underlines it by saying, no one will snatch them out of my hand. And he guarantees that no one will be able to take any of his sheep from him. You know, this promise is very similar to a promise Jesus already made back in chapter 6. In chapter 6, verses 37 to 40, Jesus said, All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none. I shall lose none of all those he's given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. And he continues in verse 44 of chapter 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up at the last day. It's the determined promise of Jesus. 
It's his word. He will raise you up if you believe in him. And in addition to the assurance based on the word and power of Jesus himself, he goes on in chapter 10 to further underline this promise. It's like he's got a kind of big highlighter or some sort of sharpie and underlining it and scribbling all over it, coloring it in, writing it in bold, whatever you do, if you're kind of the arty sort. My father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, greater than Joe, who held the lolly earlier on, greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. wonder if you're resting and delighting in this eternal security this morning. How we can worship, maybe you're even worshipping in your heart now, as you consider that promise of Jesus. No one, no one can take you from him. We can have that complete assurance and confidence. Uh, there's this uh, the great hymn, uh, How Firm a Foundation. Uh, and uh, the hymn says, How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord. Saints just meaning all of Jesus' followers, really. You saints of the Lord. How firm a foundation is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say to you than he's already said? You who unto Jesus for refuge have fled. And the song finishes, The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. It's great uh, truth to reflect on and sing, isn't it? It's great truth uh, that the Apostle Paul sung in Romans chapter 8. So I'm going to finish by reading some verses from Romans chapter 8. But as I do, I want to ask you the question. As I read these verses and finish, then I'll pray. I want to ask you the question. What is Jesus saying to you? What is Jesus saying to you? Will you hear and believe? Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long, we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray.
as that great shepherd song, Psalm 23, finishes, surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are who you say you are. That you are the Son from the Father. The one sent to rescue us, to deliver us, to be our King. The one sent to make God known to us. The ultimate prophet. The one sent to take away our sin and bring us into that right relationship with God. Our great high priest laying down your life once and for all. And Lord, we thank you that if we've received you, if we've believed you, you will not let us go. You will not lose us. No matter what we're facing at the moment, pressures that we might even be going through today, whether that's the battles in our, in our own hearts and minds, whether that's the battles from others around us and people we know, whether that's the battles from the enemy himself. Lord, thank you that no one, no one can snatch us out of your hand and you will never forsake us, never cast us out. And we pray that you would help us all to have that joy of believing you and knowing the life that you give to us, but also that joy of confidence and assurance that you will not let us go, that you will raise us on the last day and you will lead us into your presence and that eternal joy, that eternal life. Lord, please help us to hold on to that hope. And as the psalmist prays in Psalm 33, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice. We trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Amen.